Our first scripture passage is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, read from the, read from the English Standard Version. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> You're there. It's great to be with you again. As uh, Johnny said, my name is Matthew. My wife is there at the back. Wave your hand. I have three beautiful girls, age 12, 10, and 7. My household is never lacking emotion <laughs> and a lot of love. But it's great to be with you here this morning. It's something of a surprise, to, for, honestly, for me to be here. It still surprises me that I'm part of a church let alone a priest in the church. When I was about nine or 10 years old, I was in a school play, and I was down to be a truck driver. And I thought that was very cool because truck drivers, they're kind of rugged guys, and they get the girls right. And then at the very last minute, for some reason that had never been explained to me, completely inexplicable, at the last moment, they decided to make me a vicar with a collar. And I thought that was a disaster. And I kind of made a little promise, that'll never happen to me. So here I am. I have found the church to be an incredibly significant thing in my life. For me, the church has been a place of internal healing. As a young man, I uh, suffered with depression for many years of my life. For the first sort of 15 years, I would say, of my, uh, sort of from about 12 years on through 25, 26, depression colored everything that I was. I didn't become a Christian until I was 32, but it was in the church that I found healing. So the church is incredibly significant to me. In the church, I learned what it was like to relate to other men. I had a very distant and uh, absent relationship with my father. It was in the church that I first began to develop intimate relationships with men. It was in church that I first began to understand what a life of purpose might look like instead of a life of despair. So church has been incredibly important to me. And I have a message for you as a church this morning. What you are doing, what Christ Church Vienna is doing, not just this morning but in your life together, is 
significant. It really matters. It might not seem extraordinary to you. We live in North America. I think the figures are about 40% of people would say that they are Christians. Maybe church attendance is 20 to 30%. That means one in five, one in four people go to church. So it might seem an ordinary thing to you to go to church. What's the big deal? And I know that a lot of you this morning are probably just feeling, I'm glad to have made it to church at all. I'm glad to have made it with my kids. I hope the talk doesn't go on too long, and then we can go and have the rest of the day to ourselves. But if you are part of a healthy church, not perfect, but healthy, led by a healthy leader, not perfect, a little weird, but basically healthy, with a healthy family as your lead family, if you're part of a healthy church with healthy leaders, which is orthodox in faith, you are doing well. You're doing just great. And Ephesians is a letter for you. Because Ephesians is the gospel of the church, and I'm quoting John Stott here, a great theologian, British theologian. Ephesians is the gospel of the church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create, through Jesus Christ, a new society, that's us, which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. That's us. Are you excited? You should be. I get a little bit weary sometimes of hearing the church being um, attacked in various forms. I think it's amazing that people would voluntarily give up their time to do church and then do it well. And a lot of what Paul wrote in many of his other letters was basically trying to address significant problems in the church. Heresy in Galatians, faulty living in Corinthians, or division and disunity in Philippians, but not here, not in Ephesians. Ephesians is written to a church that is doing well. So Paul can say, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And it's easy to forget that this church, Ephesians, would probably have been a, a, a small house church, much smaller than this. So not a lot to boast about. A fledgling organization with a crucified leader beginning to confront the might and the power of the ancient world in Rome and the religious uh, rulers and authorities of their time. It must have felt like they were incredibly, the Ephesian church were incredibly insignificant. I think it's very hard for us to get around our head how tiny and small it must have felt to be in the Ephesian church in the first century. But Paul casts this vision and says, you, small house church Ephesians of Gentiles, those who have been outside, you are nothing less than a new society made alive in Christ. Not called to be so much to be an ideal because you're not perfect, nor to equate yourself with the full expression of the kingdom of God because that will come with Jesus, but to be a sign of the kingdom that reveals nothing less than God's wisdom. That's the church. This is what it says in Ephesians. This grace was given to, to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. 
Would you pray with me? And then we'll have a little look at this text. Father God, I pray this morning that as your church, you would encourage us. Give us a vision of what it is you're asking us to be as a church, in Christ Church, Vienna, and churches all over this country. What it is we're really doing as the church, why we do what we do. So Father God, would you speak to us? Would you help our hearts to be open and hear what you have to say to us this morning? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week you looked at a part of the Ephesians where Paul is pointing to this extraordinary reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. And you will remember, it says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. It always surprises me that the church is often seen as an instrument that maintains the status quo. Is that how you see it? The church is something that is there to kind of uphold established values and rules, a means of stability standing against change. I don't know how you equate that with the person of Jesus Christ, who, firstly, challenged the political order as a rival king, with a rival kingdom to all other claimants, Secondly, challenge the religious orders of the time as a new and sole high priest. And thirdly, challenge the socio-political makeup of his day as a prophet pointing to a different order of justice and righteousness. And this is exactly what's going on in Ephesians. Paul, as one who is in Christ, is equally challenging to us. It reminds you again of the challenge. It's hard to imagine how hosti- the hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. Here's um, the, the great Scottish theologian William Barclay. He said this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jew and Gentile was absolute. And it's against that very dark background that this new society, the church, Paul is describing, is birthed into. A small house church, a Gentile church, entering essentially a Jewish sect. It wasn't necessarily the fastest growing church. It couldn't claim to be a mega church with the latest, coolest, hip worship styles. A small house church challenging the powers of the rulers and authorities of the time. And then Paul goes on to say, look at what this, this particular challenge has meant for me. And he begins this part of the letter. It says this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Look at what this challenge has meant for me. I have become a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, why is he a prisoner? Of Christ. Humanly speaking, it doesn't make sense. Paul was not a prisoner of Christ or a prisoner for Christ in this translation. He was a prisoner for and of Nero, the emperor. 
Paul never thought, though, in human terms purely. He always saw the sovereignty of God behind human action. Therefore, he calls himself a prisoner of or a prisoner for Christ Jesus. In fact, what had happened was Paul has been preaching and has been preaching this gospel that confronts this division between Jew and Gentile and has developed, and we read in Acts, a reputation for teaching men everywhere against the people and against the law of this place by which is meant the temple, the old temple. So Paul has been challenging the temple. The Jewish people have been complaining. He, Paul throws himself at the Roman authorities. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't put me in prison. And having developed this reputation before uh, basically abolishing this divisive um, society, the, the divisions within the society, he is thrown into prison. So where does Paul get an idea so radical? And you can translate in your own minds into some situation, I'm not going to give it to you, where you see in your world the division of hostility. Where would Paul get this idea? Why does Paul feel the need to justify or explain where this new idea comes from? Let's look at what he says. Let's look at the next text. Assuming, he says, that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, can you perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit? This has not come from human thinking. This thought that Jew and Gentile could be part of one body was not somebody's fine idea. This is what Paul is saying. Paul says, this is something that has been revealed to me by God himself. So Paul talks about the stewardship of God's grace. This is something that has been given to him, and now he has a responsibility to do something with it. It's an idea from above, the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know where that takes you when we start to talk of the things of the Spirit. In truth, different churches are going to have different responses to the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. But you cannot miss here that that's where Paul thinks this is coming from. And again, in Acts, if you go back to the Acts, which is very much parallel to what's going on here, you'll see the work of the Spirit revealing this new moment in society when the Gentiles were included into the work of God, not just the Jews. And you'll remember the story of Peter and Cornelius. Where Peter gets a revelation, there's a revelation to Cornelius, the two of them meet. Peter, a Jew, goes into Cornelius' house, unthinkable for a Jew, remember the hostility between them. And while he is there, while Peter is preaching them to them, the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the, or heard the word. The Spirit comes, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. The Jews were stunned. What is this? This can't be. This division between us and the Gentiles is absolute. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even on the Gentiles. But they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? In other words, can anybody now give me a good reason for not including the Gentiles in this new society that's being formed? Paul is unashamed 
of the supernatural, if you will, above nature of his faith. He's not saying we sat down and the council of the church, we had a good think about things. We thought it might be a fine idea if, and could we put together a committee? He doesn't say that. He says this is something that has been revealed by God. When you read this, he says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. It's not been made known before, Paul says. This is something new, which is surprising, because in some ways you say, Paul, no, you're wrong. Sorry, you've got this wrong. Because in the Old Testament, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at Isaiah, there was always hints that the Gentiles would have finally be included in the people of God. And in Isaiah, it says this, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. So Paul, surely you're just mistaken here. Surely in the Old Testament, we all, people already knew, the Jewish nation already knew that one day all the nations would be included in God's plan. But what's not clear from the text in the Old Testament is that the Gentiles would occupy equal place with Jewish believers. That was something completely new. Nobody had ever imagined that Israel would not be first and the Gentiles would be underneath. That was completely a new thought. And it tells us something about this kind of revelation from on high. When we're talking about revelation from on high, the work of the Spirit, it never contradicts what has gone before. When you hear people sometimes claim that there's a new moment in the church's life and something totally new has come, we should be interested, but when we look back and see the pattern of the Old Testament and it contradicts it, we should start asking questions. That's not what's happening here. Paul is saying, look, this is a new moment. This is a new revelation, but actually it kind of fits in with what's being hinted at in the past, in the Old Testament. And he uses this word mystery. Can we have the text back up on the screen? Paul uses a word mystery several times in this text. The mystery of Christ, which has been made known to sons of men. He uses the word mystery in a way that we don't use that word. We use the word mystery to talk about some kind of TV program where there's something that somebody has to go in and find out something that is hidden and secret. In the, in the English, the word is a mystery is something dark, obscure, secret, and puzzling. But the Greek word being used here, mysterion, is different. Because although it's, it's actually talking about something that is being revealed, being made known, it's a truth hitherto hidden, um, hitherto hidden from human knowledge, which is now being revealed to us. So actually the word mystery is talking about something that's being shown to us. It's not something that human reason could simply uncover, it's something that we need revelation from above. I was trying to think of a, a, a parallel to it, of the word mystery, something that we could call a mystery in the same way. If you think about love, has any of you been here ever been in love or felt loved? Okay. Now you will know, because you've watched many films, that you can write about love. There are books on love, films are made about love. But the truth is, at some point, you have to actually encounter love to know what it is. 
however much description, however much rational explanation we can give for love, ultimately, until you actually encounter it and experience it, you cannot know what it is. And that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about something that needs to be revealed. It cannot be simply got to by human rational thinking. And Paul says, look at who this new thing is being revealed to, by the way. It's to me, Paul, the very least of all the saints. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul deliberately downplays himself. It's not false humility. His Roman surname, Paulus, is Latin for little or small. And tradition says he was a little man. I am little, he says, little by name, little in stature and morally and spiritually littler than the littlest of all Christians. And yet, it is to me that this thing is being revealed. Now to me, that should be, for all of us, incredibly encouraging. Because what it says is that significance is not the same as importance. Many of us seek after importance. Seek after importance in our work, in our career, in the church, but he's saying, no, look, significance is something different. Particularly, I would say, if you're part of the church. Because here, and this is where we're getting towards the, actually the point of this talk, here is the point and the aim of the church. Can we have the text up, verse 10? God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is what it's all about, Paul is saying. It's about you, the church, and this is what your role as the church is. Manifold is a beautiful word. It means something like the word in English, variegated, used by classical Greek writers to, to reference cloth or flowers which have intricate beauty or an embroidered pattern, an endless variety of colors in flowers. Such, says the apostle, is the wisdom of the God that ch the church declares. We are to declare the manifold wisdom of God to the world. And the major lesson taught by this part of Ephesians 3 is that the biblical centrality of the church, us, in revealing the mystery of God to others. For many of us in North America, Christianity consists of a personal relationship to Jesus Christ that is absolutely 100% right, but it, it consists of that personal relationship to Christ which the church is supposed to help we're there, the church is there to make people, draw people closer to Jesus, that's true, but, but, Paul's vision is that it is the church itself, us, the gathered people of God, who would reveal the manifold wisdom of God to the world. It's the church in itself, it's in its, in its existence, that actually shows what God is like. Not so much individual believers on their own, certainly not. It is the church itself. 
To whom is this going to be revealed to? To the greats, the powers and authorities in the heavenly places. The ancient world would have been extremely aware of the powers that controlled them. They would have had far less freedom than we enjoy today. And the powers around them would have been extreme. The Roman authority over the ancient world was absolute. And Paul says, you, little Ephesian church, little group of Gentiles who've been included into this body, by this mystery, it is you who are going to reveal the very thing that is going to confront the entire world. What preposterous nonsense, Paul. How could that possibly happen? And yet look at what did happen over the next few centuries when the church spread like wildfire across the ancient world. Why did the church spread so fast? Because of the talented evangelists? Because of the clever programs? No, because there was something inherent in the church that showed a new society, something that had not been seen that revealed the manifold, this beautiful, variegated, colorful, elaborate wisdom of God. It was the church as it loved and included those outside, inside, where it began to include the unthinkable, the slaves, the Gentiles, began to be embraced by the church. It was that that showed something so new to the ancient world that it could not be ignored. It could not be called insignificant. See, here's the important thing for us to understand this morning. The church is not called to fix the world, okay? If you want to try and fix the world, good luck. Sure, we're called to be engaged with the world and the issues. We are. But the most important thing for the church to do is to be significant. Most of us, I spend most of my time at Truro, the church that I work, saying, can we stop doing that? Stop. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Can we do less? Can we do less? Can we do less? Because so much of it is just busyness. It's busyness, but it's insignificant. I'm not having a go at Truro at all. But it's just true of any church. The vast majority, no, I shouldn't say that. A lot of what we do is insignificant. It's busyness. But the church is not called to be insignificant. It's called to be significant. A sign, a sign to the world in itself as a group of people of the manifold wisdom of God. So we should never be discouraged, never. Whether we think church is going well, and I'm speaking at a little church this evening called Ascension that is, I don't know, maybe a third the size of this. Whether you're part of a big church, a growing church, a small church, whether you think things are going well in your family or not going well, there is never a moment where you cannot be significant, you can. Paul has set this extraordinary purpose, this revelation of the manifold wisdom of God, the showing of the nature of God himself against himself in prison. Littlest of the little. I'm a little man, he says. I'm a nobody. Never be discouraged. It's not dependent on how much you do. Too often you come to church and there's a message, do more, give more, be more. Yes, okay, maybe. But maybe the most important thing is that the church, us, we the body, 
we do this thing, we follow the pattern, which is we ask God to tell us by revelation, through the work of the Spirit, however you do that, through a discerning group of people, through the leadership, what is the one or two or three or four, whatever it does, what are the really significant things that we should be doing? What are the really significant things that will be assigned to the world of the manifold wisdom of God? We can drop everything else if we could do those things. This is what it looks like for us at Truro Church. And I offer you this this morning, not as this is what you should be doing, absolutely not, but just as, a, as an example, we're not doing it particularly well. We're only just starting with these things, but it is, shows something, I think, of this pattern, that out of prayer, out of a discerning community of believers who open themselves to prayer and the Spirit, out of a particular leader at a particular time and a particular place, these are the things that Truro Church has felt itself called to, which I think are significant. The first thing is peacemaking. As a church, we're exploring what it means to be peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker in a denomination or ex-denomination that has fallen apart? What would it mean to be a peacemaker? How do you make peace with people you disagree with? When you're holding to the values and beliefs that you have, how do you extend a hand of friendship? And if we can do that within the church, Perhaps we can learn to do that outside of the church, across political divisions. If we can learn to be peacemakers in a very divided, I don't want to say nation, can I say nation? All right, I'll say it. In a very divided nation. As an outsider, it's remarkable how, at least politically, how divided the walls of hostility between different political parties are extraordinary to experience. I've never experienced anything like that in Europe growing up. The walls of hostility and anger, it feels a little bit like Jew and Gentile. What would it mean to extend peace without letting go of what you believe across those divisions? So we're exploring peacemaking. And we are, the second thing we're exploring, in the light of the difficulties uh, that surround marriage and family, we're beginning to think, well, what would it be like, rather than to try and fix the problems, is if we started to model family and marriage as evangelism in and of itself that family and marriage could become something extraordinarily positive, that actually it'd be a way to, be, to draw people into the fragrance of Christ through families and through marriages as extensions of the church to develop little domestic churches around the main church. Why? Because we think, we think that biblically speaking, marriage is a sign of the nature of God. It reveals the manifold wisdom of God. There's something about male and female in marriage that reveals it. So why don't we do something positive? And uh, we found this model from Italy of a Roman Catholic priest who's been doing this all over Italy in lots of Roman Catholic parishes. So we're wrestling with all those issues. We're not Roman Catholics. They are, oh, can we do this? But actually, what we're seeing is something which potentially could be extremely significant. And I'm, in my humble way, trying to help Truro cut out as much of the other stuff the business, so that we might be able to really do these things that are really significant. We're not called to be busy as Christians. We're called to do the thing that God has called us. Christchurch is not called to be busy, busy with God. It's called to do the things that God has asked you to do to be significant. The pattern is revelation in whatever, however you get that. I'm not talking about booming voices from heaven. I'm talking about discerning committees, uh, to discerning groups of people, leaders who are listening to God from above, into the church, through the church, 
to the world. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. Where does that leave us this morning? The inclusion of the Gentiles that we've been reading about in Ephesians would have been a radical sign to the culture of the time because of the deep divisions. It begged questions of that culture. It demanded a response. The gospel always confronts the culture. It always confronts the idols of our times. There is no gospel without confrontation of the culture and the idols that we are surrounded by. We are called as the church to be a sign, significant, not depending on our size or scale or our importance. It's not something we can calculate. It pushes us back to God to ask Him what He wants to do among us as a community already under His leadership and lordship, to pray and discern as a community what our significance is, so that, as Paul said in that passage we read, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for Christ Church Vienna. I want to thank you that you've gathered a group of people together with particular gifts, particular talents, at a particular place at a particular time. That you have purposes that you are wanting to work through the church, not just individuals, but the church. That, Lord, you want to do something significant with Christ Church. Significant meaning a sign, a sign to the world of your love, of your wisdom, of what you are unfolding through the person of Jesus Christ, even in our time. So, Father, this morning, as we um, come to take communion to feed of your life, Lord, would you speak again to us as a community about the things that we're doing, the things that you're calling us to, not just as individuals, but as groups, as, in, as communities, or communities within the community. That, Lord, the thing that we would do would be the significant thing, the significant thing, the sign that you want to show the world through us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in 